You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer Sermon Podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. If you've been with us at all in the last couple of weeks or months, you'll know that we have been going through First and Second Kings, but not today. Today, we just take one week break to do a meditation on Easter and its meaning. So today, we'll look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. This is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Recently, I was speaking with a thoughtful acquaintance who doesn't believe in God at all. And we were speaking about justifications or reasons one would try to live a moral life. And he said, you know, look, when we die, we're just, we're just going to be dead. That's it. And so I figure we might as well make life as pleasant as possible here, and the golden rule helps with that. So I treat people as nice as I can and try to go through this life and do the best I can. This might be called a, a philosophy like altruism. I want to live my best life for others because it's just kind of easier that way. Live the golden rule. There's lots of religions that believe in the golden rule, and we'll call that altruism. But as I was talking with them, I said, you know, that same starting point that we're all going to die and just, you know, there's nothing that happens in an afterlife, that same starting point has been used to justify the very opposite belief. Well, if we're going to die, might as well have as much fun as we want and we should accumulate as much pleasure as we can possibly get. This is a philosophy that's been called hedonism in the past. Hedonism, accumulate as much pleasure as you can. And altruism doesn't have to be in conflict with hedonism, but it often is. Because if I'm seeking to accumulate as much pleasure as I can in this life, chances are I'm not seeking to maximize the pleasure of others altruistically, right? But that's not really the observation I want to make this morning. Rather, what I want you to get to see is that both of these views, altruism and hedonism, are ways to reckon with how to live morally in this life in view of death. How, what should we think about death? How should we live in light of death? And people really do answer that question differently, don't they? Very rarely do we just sit down in a chair all by ourselves and think and contemplate on our death. But we're all going to die. But there are lots of different answers about how to think or live in light of death. And so today I want to spell out to you for what, what Christians believe about death because it's a seeming paradox. These two statements that will be our two points this morning are both strong statements and they're stronger than any weaker philosophy considered about how to live in light of death. Here are our two points this morning. They'll be very difficult to remember. Death is bad and death is good. Death is bad and death is good. First, death is bad. Our Hebrews passage states many evils of death. Chapter 2, verse 15 
talks about those with a fear of death who were subject to lifelong slavery. That is, in view of the fact that we're all going to die, especially 2,000 years ago when there was a lot more visible mortality in front of people's lives. In fact, that's been true for most of history until about the last 100 years or so. People would live in fear of their impending death. There were no antibiotics 2,000 years ago. Even the most powerful people in the world couldn't stop themselves from dying. And so when you think about it, the fact that you can't control not dying is a form of slavery. A lifelong slavery as soon as you're alive. And so because of that, those who do acknowledge such slavery have a fear of Of death. And in verse 14, we learn what some of those fears and enslavements are. Verse 14 says, the the power of death, which is the power of the devil, that is Satan. Now, to be clear, in Christian belief, Satan does not have the power in death. Rather, he has the power to lead to death. Christians believe that even at the end of time, Satan will be thrown into hell. He is not the ruler of hell. Rather, he has the power to lead others into death with his lies. And if Satan is excited about death, I don't think we should be, nor do I think we should simply be resigned to it. Friends, Hebrews is stating rather baldly what is evidently true for those who will admit it to themselves. Death is bad. Your death is bad. The death of a loved one is bad. Encountering death of any stripe is bad. We were not created to be enslaved. We were not created to be in fear about this. We were not created to die. This honest reckoning with death is often ignored in our American consumeristic memory hole as we constantly try to distract ourselves from this impending reality, but our poets reckon with it. It's the poets who reckon with the badness of death. Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead once sang, death don't have no mercy in this land. I know what you're thinking. I never thought Dave would do a Grateful Dead quote. But he was staring into the abyss of death. This despite the irony of the band's name. Death don't have no mercy in this land. Or consider the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas, who once famously wrote in a poem, Do not go gentle into that good night. He's writing about his father. And he's writing about death. And he says, rage, rage against the dying of the light. He knows that death is bad. Jerry Garcia knows that death is bad. And when they stare into the face of the abyss... They have words that are meant to rage against it. These men know the evils of death in their bones. Now, when we face terrible evils or suffering or death, we have a few options. I think the option that we pick the most in suburbia is distraction. Online shopping, another binge watch, another drink, suburban busyness. Those things might make you happy for a time, but if you never reckon with the badness of death, eventually they'll just make you anxious and depressed, which probably describes many of you this morning. Another option in the face of evil and suffering and impending death is to rely on naivety. Say a loved one dies, I hear this a lot. Oh, my loved one is looking down on me. Christians don't believe that. Oh, now they're one of the angels. Christians don't believe that either. We rely on these little fables we tell ourselves so we don't have to deal honestly with death and the pain of it. Death don't have no mercy. Our last option we might consider is to cry out for God, 
for mercy, to save us in light of our impending death. And when we do, the last thing we really expect is to hear that God crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forlorn on a cross, dying himself. Death is bad. Paradoxically, somehow, a kind of death is also good. Hebrews 2.14 tells us that Jesus shared in flesh and blood like the children, that is humans, particularly humans that trust in Christ in order to destroy death. Jesus, in the incarnation, fully God, becomes fully human and takes on our pain. He stubbed his toe just like you and me do. And he died just like you and me will. And he did that in order to substitute himself from our ultimate death. On the cross, he did not just face physical death, he faced hell. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He faced the torment of hell, becoming sin for us. So that, as Hebrews says, he would destroy the power of death, that is, the devil. As the theologian John Owen 400 years ago said, there is a death of death in the death of Christ. There is a death of death in the death of Christ. In other words, we can be delivered like Hebrews 2.14 and 15 says, because Jesus ultimately substituted for us, for those who trust in him. We can follow in his train. Someone else has done the work we needed to defeat death. Igor Stravinsky's music offers an example of such a substitution. Stravinsky was a 20th century classical composer, mid-20th century, and he has a unique distinction of having 90% of his music set to ballet. People would hear the music and beautiful artists would say, this music needs to be visualized. In fact, the the famous... Uh, ballet choreography, Václav Nijinsky, said when he heard Stravinsky's music, the sight of gestures and movements of the various parts of the body producing the music is fundamentally necessary if it is to be grasped in all its fullness. And so while an audience would sit there and hear the music, they would also see the music enacted through dance. And someone else was doing all the work so that they could really grasp the beauty of what is being done. Friends, God could say he loved you, but he danced his love for you by doing the dance you couldn't have done and defeating death and setting his love to music in the cross of Christ. And so the paradox this morning, death is bad and death is good. And you need to reckon with both lest you be too simplistic. You could be a simplistic believer who doesn't deal honestly with the evils of death and make everything pie in the sky you could also be a simplistic non-believer, not reckoning with the need for a substitute to deliver you from ultimate death. The only way to overcome such naivety and simplicity is by trusting in the one who did not just substitute in our death, but who defeated death in his resurrection, Jesus Christ. Christians believe this is not just some metaphor, this is not just some fable, but Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead 2,000 years ago in history. There are several proofs of this. One is that 11 out of 12 disciples died a martyr's death over the coming decades. This is not something you do if you're trying to perpetrate a fraud. This is only something you do if you saw him rise from the grave. Another reason we know that the resurrection of Christ really did happen is that in the gospel accounts, the first people to encounter him are always women. And 2,000 years ago, if you were trying to perpetrate a fraud, you would not have women begin to tell the tale. 
That's how we know it happened. And because it happened, Jesus' reality of his resurrection overcomes the badness of death by having his own body, his real physical body with his scars come back to life and say, I have overcome. Christians believe that even in heaven right now, at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus Christ is in the body with his scars, pleading for his, pleading for his own. And Jesus' resurrection also validates the goodness of his death because we too will still die. But we won't have to face ultimate death. Those who trust in Christ will someday rise into real, physical, literal bodies again someday too. And that, my friends, is hope that we need. We don't go and to live into some ethereal heaven forever. We actually live on this renewed earth in physical bodies forever. The New Testament calls Jesus Christ the first fruits, which means there are others to come, and you and me and those who trust in Christ will be that. Do you really believe this? Is the resurrection of Christ your bedrock reality? Is it something that you base your whole life on? Or do you believe some other fantasy? Let's pray. Father, you have spoken the words in your scripture and we declare them anew today. We need it to wash through us, mind, body, soul, that we might give you all the worship you deserve. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.